Well, that's the uh, question we've been wrestling with these last few weeks and want to continue to do that uh, today and the next couple of weeks. What's it actually mean to be a Christian? The word Christian is an interesting word because we use it in a very different way than it it was originally used uh, when it started. Today, when we talk about being a Christian, a Christian is something that we would self-identify as, right? So usually we're talking about a subculture like I'm a, I'm a Christian, that means I celebrate Christmas, I celebrate Easter, maybe Lent, something like that. I go to a Christian bookstore, I have Christian music, I have Christian breath because I eat testaments, you know, those kind of things. And so <clears throat> I'm a Christian, or we use it as an excluder. And so somebody might say, are you Jewish, are you Muslim, are you a Hindu, are you a Sikh? And we might say, no, I'm a Christian. I would exclude myself or identify myself into a religious category. And that's generally how we would use that word today. And there's nothing necessarily like big and wrong with that. It just kind of is, right? But it's not the way that the word was used at first. The, the word was first used in the, in the, in the uh, early church as a way to stereotype or label someone. So they literally would look at someone who was a follower of Jesus and they would say things like, you know what that guy thinks? That guy actually thinks that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. That guy is always quoting Jesus. That guy prays to Jesus. That guy worships Jesus. That guy thinks Jesus is God. They're just all about Jesus all the time. Just a bunch of little Jesuses running around, little Christ, Christians, Christians. And it was a title that someone from the outside would put on someone on the inside, and they would stereotype you. You just think, you're just like Christ all the time. It was never a self-identifier. It was a label or a title. The term Jesus used to identify his followers is very different than Christian. He used the word disciple, and a disciple has a very narrow meaning. The word disciple means if I'm a disciple of someone, it means that I love them, I follow them, and I'm fully devoted to my master. As a disciple, I'm learning everything my master says. I'm trying to follow my master's heart. I'm trying to mimic his life. I want to act like, think like, love like, be motivated like my master. So much so that when you looked at me, you would not see me necessarily as an individual all the time. You would see me as someone quickly and easily identified with my master. So Christian can kind of mean anything, right, in, in the way that we use it. It can mean anything in the subculture. Anybody who decides they want to call themselves a Christian can be a Christian. Jesus' definition only means one thing. It means I have bought into that Jesus is God, that he rose again from the dead. He's the sole source of forgiveness of sin, and I follow him. I love him. I am fully devoted to him. Now, Jesus says this in John chapter 13, verse 35 He says, there's a way to identify my followers, and they will stick out like a sore thumb. And Jesus says this, people will know, by this all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. Jesus comes to the earth, and he introduces this very, very radical idea. Instead of setting up a religious system, which is a behavioral modification system, go to church, don't do these things, do do these things, don't smoke, drink, chew, date girls who do, right? He, he, instead of doing that, he says, this is how you'll know that people follow me or devoted to me. They will have love. They will have a radical love for each other and they will have a radical love for the people around them. They'll do weird stuff like love their enemies. They'll do crazy stuff like 
forgive freely. They won't harbor bitterness. They'll do crazy, insane stuff like they won't seek revenge for things. They will not repay evil for evil. They'll sell everything that they have and give it to the poor. They'll lay their life down for people that they don't know. And when you see people that love other people like that, when you run into someone and they love you like that, you'll know that they're my disciple. That is the hallmark. It's not what they do. It's not what they know. It's not their theology. It's not their religious behavior. It's not the degree of morality that they bring into their life. Not primarily. Some of those things come on later. But it is their love, their instinct, almost their inability not to love people. That's how you'll know my disciples. Jesus' best friend, the Apostle John, wrote about this in John chapter, 1 John chapter 4. He went this far. He's speaking on God's behalf, and he said this. He said, listen, if you don't have love, you don't know God. People who know God love God and other people. People who say that they know God, but they hate their brother, if they don't love, then they don't know God. Because if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, Christ changes your heart. He changes your mind. The Bible uses this word born. The love of God is born or fathered into you. So much so that that is my spiritual DNA and I cannot stop myself from loving other people. The Apostle Paul says, I'm compelled by it. I can't, it brings me along because God has changed the way that I think and God has changed the way that my heart works and I am a disciple of Christ and I will be quickly and easily identified for my love for other people. So that's the deal. I'm going to love, and I'm going to love the way that Jesus loves. So the question becomes, how does Jesus love, right? I love this quote, and when you throw it out on Twitter, don't quote me, I'm quoting somebody else, I just don't know who, (laughs) but I heard it somewhere, all right? So this is the deal. I love this little phrase. If you wanna know what Jesus means by what Jesus says, look at what Jesus did. If you want to know what Jesus means by what Jesus says, look at what Jesus did. And Jesus defined for us how to love by what he did. John 13 says that he showed us the full extent of his love. How did he do that? Through his suffering and his death. When Jesus suffered and then he ultimately died on the cross, he was demonstrating the full extent of his love. So much so that in 1 John chapter 4 again, The Bible says this, God demonstrated his love to us in that he sent his son Jesus who gave his life for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That word atoning is a fascinating word. It means this. It means Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe for those of us who owe a debt that we could not pay. Jesus came to people that did not ask him to come. He came to people who many didn't even know who he was. He came to people who hated him. The Bible says outside of Christ, we hate God in our hearts. We're an enemy of God in our hearts. He came to people who didn't know him, who didn't love him, who didn't ask him, who didn't care. And he loved us so much that he laid his life down by his own initiative, by his own authority, that's John chapter 10, and to be an atoning sacrifice, to pay a debt. He didn't know, Jesus never sinned, so he didn't have a sin debt. For those of us who owe a debt that we can't pay, we can't get ourselves out of it. That's what love looks like. And Jesus says, you'll know my disciples because they'll love you like that. They'll lay their lives down for you. 
They, they'll give everything they have to go to some corner of the world to tell people about Jesus who never asked them to come and tell them about Jesus. They, they, they'll go all in. They will stick with you. They will not leave you or forsake you. They will mimic my heart and mimic my mind because I have birthed love into them and the fruit of that or the byproduct of that is that that love's going to come out of them. And when you see people who love you to the degree that reminds you of how much I loved you when I laid my life down on the cross for you, when I paid something for you that I didn't have to do, even though you hated me, I did it anyways, you'll know that they're my disciples. Never says go to church. Never says clean your life up. Never says live moralistically, right? All of our obedience to God is in a response to his love for him. That's what Jesus said in John 14, 15. He looked at his disciples. He said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. The life change, the behavior modification comes from our love for God. It doesn't come in our earning God's love to us. And Jesus says, that's my disciples. You'll know that people follow me, love me, and are devoted to me when they love you and people around you like that. They will stick out like a sore thumb. They're unmistakable. He never said, go make Christians. In fact, Jesus never used the word Christian, neither did the disciples. He never said, go make Christians. He said, go make disciples. Teach them my heart and my mind and teach them to love like this. Now, we've been talking about that the past couple weeks. So all that's out online, bath.graceohio.org. You can, you can watch it, listen to it, get a podcast for free through iTunes if you want and hear all the details on that. This is where this all becomes very difficult. Because this idea of loving radically <clears throat> to many of our ears sounds like a radical idea. In fact, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're kind of on the outside of the church looking in, for many people, most people in our culture who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, if I said that's what a Christian should be known for, that's what a follower of Jesus is, you would think, ah, that's not what I think about when I think about a Christian. I think about what they're against. I don't think about what they're for because that's what they're the loudest about. In fact, if I needed love, or I needed help, or I needed guidance, I probably wouldn't go to my local Christian, my local Christ follower, because they would probably judge me, reject me, and push me. That's the general preconceived idea of what it is. Now, where does that come from? That comes from false definitions of what it means to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ, that gets labeled Christianity. I was raised like this. I don't know if you were or not. Some of you were raised in the church, some of you weren't, but many of us would have this idea of the church. I was raised in a tradition in which I was taught that if I really, really, really loved Jesus, I would prove my devotion to Jesus by participating in a very heavy way in the subculture that was set up in Jesus' name. So I went to church three to four times a week and when I would go to church, I would get a list of to-dos and to-don'ts, right? You got to do this, and you don't got to do this, and you better behave this way. And if you, were, if you were committed to modifying your behavior to a high degree, you were thought to be a very devoted follower of Jesus Christ. There's certain things you weren't allowed to do. You didn't go into the church. If you had a, a tattoo or a piercing or looked cool in any way, shape, or form, you weren't welcome into the church, right? Because that stuff was like a one-way ticket to hell. You didn't listen to music that wasn't church music. You didn't watch TV that wasn't church TV. You didn't even watch movies that weren't church 
movies because you were taught that if you really loved God, you would really get your act together and you would prove that love to God. Now, what happens in that is this. Maybe without meaning to or maybe meaning to, I don't know. I don't want to necessarily judge someone's motives because I don't always understand it. But what happens is you drift into separatism. And so we were warned to watch out for people who didn't participate in our subculture. Got to be careful because they'll contaminate us. Got to be careful because they'll come in here with this radical idea. Got to be careful because they went to see the newest Star Wars movie and that new age. Got to be careful. And so we were taught if you really love Jesus, you only hang out with Christians. You only do Christian stuff. You speak a Christian language. You participate in Christian expectations. And the more you did that, the more you loved Jesus. And the tragic result of that is it set up an us against them mindset. We have to hold, see. The culture's deteriorating around us. We have to hold. Traditions are being lost. We have to hold. Yucky things are happening. We have to hold. Keep them at bay. Circle up around yourselves. It's us against them. And the long-term effect of that is the church is known for what it stands against and not known for our love for anyone. That's how that works. Now, you take that position that many followers of Christ were taught Many people who do not follow Christ think the church believes in and try to rectify that with the heart and the mind and the life of Jesus and those two things will not connect to themselves because Jesus, the, I, the us against them mindset would be completely foreign to Jesus. If you wanna know what Jesus means by what Jesus says, you gotta look at what Jesus did and what did he do? Well, he did not isolate himself from people who did not agree with him he came to those people. When somebody rejected him or hated him or accused him, he did not repay evil. He didn't reject and accuse and picket them back. He laid his life down. His love was demonstrated in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies of God in our heart, he died for us. He was known as a friend of sinners not someone who excluded them from him. When you look at Jesus's life and his desire to come and he came, he says, to seek and to save that which was lost, to be an atoning sacrifice, to pay a debt he did not owe for those who owe a debt they could not pay. When you look at the way that he interacted with the tax collector and the way that he interacted with the prostitute and the way that he interacted with the people around him, you cannot find an us against them mindset in Jesus's actions in which he defined what he was teaching. So those two positions, it works fine in Christianity. It doesn't work at all in discipleship. What you see in Jesus is an us for them mentality. Jesus didn't come and say, it's me against you guys. He said, it's me for you guys. In fact, probably the most famous verse in the world is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And maybe one of the most important verses in the world is the next one, John 3, 17. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because we've already condemned ourselves. He didn't need to do it. In our sin, in our rebellion, in our wickedness, Jesus didn't have to make that happen. We handled it all by ourselves. Why did he come to people who had rejected him and hardened their heart and didn't want anything to do with him? Because of the enormity of the Father and his love for us. And as a disciple, as one who follows, wants to act like, think like, love like, be motivated like, be mistaken for Jesus, that would define me then. That I would have that kind of love for God, and that kind of love for my neighbor. In fact, John 4, that love is what tells me that I know God because it's a supernatural love that God puts into me, and it's the most powerful thing God gives me. So that's why it doesn't make sense all the time. That's why you would talk about this loving Jesus and it would be this jerk screaming at you. And following Jesus is very different than being tied, see, into the religious constructs of the church. Now, it's fascinating what the Apostle Paul says about this. I love it. Grab your Bibles if you got it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is helping us to kind of figure this out. He's putting kind of skin on what it means to know and follow Jesus. If you don't have a Bible or someone under the chair, it's just page 797 in that Bible. If you want to use your phone, we use the Version app. And the Apostle Paul is kind of elaborating on this us-for-them position. Not an us-against-them, but an us-for-them position. And it's fascinating what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 he says this, though I am free and belong to no one, I have, been, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Let's just pause there for a second, okay? Paul says, I'm free. I've received salvation. I've received the grace of God. I've received the love of God. I am free from the bondage of my sin, right? I once was a slave to it. Now I'm not because Christ came changed my heart, renewed my mind, gave me the Holy Spirit, freed me from sin. And what have I done with that freedom? I have not used that freedom to create a subculture. I've not used that freedom to re-enslave people through the bounds of religion and religious activity. What I have done with that freedom is I have made myself a slave to win as many as possible. I have taken my freedom and I'm using that freedom. I've enslaved myself for them. I'm not isolating myself. I'm not a separatist. I hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of Jesus or the gospel of Jesus is this. You have condemned yourself in your sin. You, it's not that you're going to go to hell one day. It's that you're on your way there right now. And there is a God who's not out to get you. He doesn't need to get you. You got yourself. 
There is a God who's out to love you. And he sent his only son. And his son did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came to provide a way of escape, a rescue, a salvation. He died for you. You may not know about that yet, but you need to. Paul says, I've enslaved myself to tell that good news to win some to the cause of the gospel. Then he kind of explains what he did. To the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, as to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, I, I want to win. And I'm going to pursue, and I've enslaved myself to this. He's not talking about engaging in sin. That's not at all what the Scripture's talking about. He's not talk or, talking about apologizing or compromising the teachings of Scripture. He's talking about how I engage people and overcome the cultural barriers. If I, if I need to engage you like a Jewish person, I will. If I need to engage you like a Gentile person, I will. If I, I will do whatever I can do to win you for the cause of Christ. Now, it's fascinating that Paul says that because what he doesn't say is this. He doesn't say, I have staked a position and I'm going to shout you down until you agree with my position. He doesn't say, I, I have come up with a theology, a view of God or an understanding of God is what a theology means, a doctrine. And, I, and I'm, going to, I'm going to yell that theology and that doctrine at you, whether you understand it or not, and if you listen enough, maybe you'll get a clue about it. I'm not going to patronize you. He's not setting out that. I'm not looking to control you. I am seeking to win, to persuade people about what? Not about my opinions or my positions, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, guys, this is what happens. Whenever the disciples of Jesus deviate from the mission of Jesus, which is to make disciples, to broadcast, to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ, to love, and we move over and we become positional and say, no, what you got to do is you got to modify your behavior first. And if you modify your behavior enough, then maybe God will like you. We actually surrender the greatest tool of social change that God gives us. It's not that theology is worthless or dumb, not at all. It's not that doctrine is worthless or dumb. Same writer says we should have sound doctrine. It's that you don't lead with it. We lead with love, we lead with relationship. And once love and relationship is in place, then all the broader conversations come on top of that. That's why Jesus said, here's commandment number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, all the law and all the prophets, all the other stuff hangs on that. If you pull love off, everything else collapses. If you pull love in, everything else is empowered. Now, if you think about any other relationship in your life, that's what makes sense, right? That's what makes sense. 
you lead with love. If you were trying to win someone, you would try to win with love, right? So let's just, let's just put this in a, in a dating context for a minute, all right? And, and I'm just going to pick on the guys. So fellas, listen up. Listen, fellas, by the way, if you were ever going to take dating advice, you should take it from me, all right? Take it from me. Because if you are kind of a, not that attractive and a little bit pudgy, and you hit a grand slam like I did, you should be taking notes. When you look at me and then you look at Heidi, you'd be like, how did that happen? I'd be like, exactly, listen up, right? So this is how it works, okay? If you were trying to win your girl's heart, right, how would you do that? Would you try to argue her into dating you? Listen, I know you don't want to date me, but you're just dumb for thinking that. I, I know you think I'm ugly, but that's the most moronic thing I've ever heard in my life. You, you have the most simplistic, dumb, ignorant positions ever. If you were smart, you would date me, right? Would you turn it into a political issue? Listen, I know that you said you wouldn't go out with me, but I've, uh, I guess some of my friends have signed a petition. Uh, we got a local law passed that says you can only date me, and if you won't adhere to that, we'll pick at the dorm and not let you date anybody. Is that what you do? Would you patronize her? Would you look and say, listen, baby, I, I, can, uh, I can tell you're miserable. You, you obviously, because you're not going out with me, you obviously are unhappy. You have no joy. You have no meaning in your life. And if you would like joy, fulfillment, and purpose, you have to start dating me. Is that how you would approach that? By the way, if you're going to approach dating that way, go ahead and call your mom and just ask if you can move back into the basement because you're going to be living there the rest of your life, right? Okay, it's, it's dumb. Why? Because we're trying to win someone's heart. Paul says, I'm trying to win. I'm not trying to prove. I'm not trying to discredit. I'm not trying to capitalize on the vote. I want to win And I am marked as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I love him. I follow him. I am fully devoted to him. And I love him with my heart, soul, and mind and strength. I love my neighbor as myself. God has birthed into me a supernatural love. That love compels me to tell you this good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do that with gentleness and respect, another set of words that Paul uses to talk about our relationships. And I want to win you over, not prove you wrong. And as a disciple, if I take a us-against-them mindset, That's to prove you wrong. Us against them mindset. Well, you're dumb for thinking that. Us against them mindset. Well, I can't, you you must have a vacant life to even. But as a follower of Jesus, if I'm mimicking him, I take an us for them position. I would like to know you. I'd like to understand you. I'd like to connect with you. I'd like to be a friend with you. I'd like to offer you the depths of my relationship. In fact, you know what? I'll be a friend more faithful than the brother. I'll never leave you or forsake you no matter what you're going through. Even when we vehemently disagree, love will define our relationship with each other. Now, that short circuits the way I was raised. 
And I know if I was talking to the folks that I was raised with, the first thing after they got done calling me a heretic, the first thing they would say is, well, what are we supposed to do about the country then? What are we, what are we supposed to do all this stuff happening in our, what, what are we supposed to do with people who hate us and disagree with us? What, how are we supposed, if we're a follower of Jesus, how are we supposed to interact with them? I'd say, well, on the, on the foundation of love. Well, what about their behavior? Because their behavior, you agree their behavior is sinful? Sure, because the, the, the Bible defines sin, not me. So yeah, that's obvious. Acts of the sinful nature are obvious, the Bible says. Well, what do we do about their behavior then if we're trying to win them over? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul addressed that. So flip back in the Bible, a couple pages, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Same guy writing, still speaking on God's behalf, has the authority to speak on God's behalf. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. This is what Paul says. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to, I wrote to you in an earlier letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, as I was raised, we would all pause right there and say, amen, right? No, say, see, you got to keep them out. The sexually immoral people, people living together, people wearing bikinis, gays, you, sexually immoral people got to stay out. You pause too early. I wrote to you, verse 9, a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Ready? Verse 10, this is the Apostle Paul. Not at all meaning the people of this world. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral and greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. I'm not talking about them. What? I'm talking about us. That shocked me when I learned that. You're not talking about them? No. What about their behavior? What about it? I'm talking about you. I'm talking about people who claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ and how you and I would behave. Look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but a sexually immoral, greedy, an adulterer, a slander, a drunk, or a swindler, don't even eat with such people. What's he talking about? Paul's saying, listen, I'm talking about people who signed up to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not even really talking about people who self-identified as a Christian. I'm talking about disciples. If you signed up and you said, I believe that Jesus is God, I believe that he is the sole source of salvation. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, nobody goes to the Father except through him, I, I, I signed up and believed that. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that his words are true and truth for me. If I signed up to do that, and I'm acting in a sexually immoral way, or greedy, idolatry, materialism, the whole nine yards, right? Paul says, yeah, deal with that. Deal with that sin. Judge it, he says earlier. By the way, little side note, the Bible says, the Bible never says don't judge people. The Bible doesn't say that we're not to judge people. The Bible tells us who to judge. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not to judge the outside world. I'm to judge the church itself. We confuse being judgmental with being self-righteous, right? So the Bible says to all of us, don't be self-righteous. It doesn't say don't be judgmental, right? Self-righteous is when I believe that my sin is not as bad as your sin, and, and I'm self-righteous about it. Can you believe that person smokes cigarettes? 
Can you believe? They smoke cigarettes. And the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and they fill it with nicotine and tobacco and tar. They are cigarette smokers. I can't believe it. Can I have some more bacon for my Whopper, please? I'll have it with my chicken fries and my Diet Coke that's rotting my intestines. Right? That's, that's self-righteousness. That's self-righteousness. Being judgmental is a legal issue. It's a simple right or wrong. Dude, you you shouldn't talk to your wife that way. You're completely disrespectful to your wife and embarrass her in front of people. You shouldn't talk to your wife that way. Who are you to judge me? I'm your brother. And the Bible specifically says that you are to live with your wife in an understanding way. You are to interact with her in a gentle way. And that you are to be more submissive to her than she is to be to you. Where do you get that nonsense from? Ephesians chapter 5. <laughs> You're judging me. No, I'm not. I'm reminding you what God says. It's not my opinion. It's the word of God. And Paul says to the church, listen, when somebody's living in a sinful, sexually immoral way or whatever sin you want to put in there, the believers are to judge them. Why? Because they're diluting and clouding and distorting who Christ is. The reason I live a holy life is not to get God to love me. The reason I live a holy life is because I love God. And Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. And when someone is willfully in sin and stubbornly in sin and they will not forgive and they will not release bitterness and they will not see their own sin, those of us who love them with gentleness and respect are to seek to address that and restore them. Why? Because not only are they perverting a picture of Christ, they're perverting a picture of what Christ's disciples are and that's unacceptable to God because those people are not known for their love, they're known for their sin. Paul says, that's what I was talking about. Don't even, if they will not back down and repent, don't even associate with them. Because I don't want someone being identified with me that refuses to allow me to transform their life. Well, I'm a Christian. Nobody asks, are you a disciple? It's different. And a disciple seeks to import what God has to say. We don't look for the edges around it. Paul says, address that. That's not something that can stand. I'm not at all talking about them. I'm talking about you. Now, listen to this. This gets crazy. Don't email me. I didn't write it. Email the Apostle Paul. It's paul at heaven.god. You can send it. It'll come back, right? Right? Here it is. Verse 12. Look at this. This is nuts. If you were raised the way I was raised, us against them, what am I ready? It's going to blow your mind. Ready? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? That's what the Apostle Paul just said. What do I care? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? We talk to each other. Why? Because we signed up to follow Jesus. They didn't sign up to follow Jesus. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those on the inside? God will judge those on the outside. Guys, listen. This is huge. In an us-against-them mindset, we look at their behavior and say, if you don't get your act together, you can't come hang out with us. Find that from the heart and the minds and words of Jesus. I'll sign my house over to you. It's not even in the book. 
God was saying, no, 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 when you sign up to follow Jesus, now I'm signing up to live a certain way. I'm signing up to allow my behavior to be conformed a certain way. In fact, God will empower it. In fact, it'll be a byproduct of his Holy Spirit living in me. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. What business is it of mine what people who never signed up to do that do? Well, they're in sin, right. That's why there's a just God, he'll deal with it. It's not my job. What's my job? To proclaim the gospel and to extend love. And when they sign up to follow Jesus, I help to teach them how to do that. We don't belittle, we don't berate, we don't dismiss, they're not dumb. Listen, if you never signed up to follow Jesus, then living a life of sin makes all the sense in the world to you. There's nothing illogical about it. Gay marriage makes all the sense in the world to you if you've been taught that marriage is about an emotional attachment to one another that you legalize for tax purposes. If you think that's what marriage is and you're gay, then gay marriage makes all the sense in the world to you. If no one ever taught you that marriage has very little to do with your emotions, has everything to do with your connection and an oath and a vow that you take to God, it mimics the covenant that God has with his church. As a wife responds to her husband, as a husband responds to God, we paint a portrait of God's love and passion for his people, and we disciple people through our marriage. The greatest discipleship tool you have for your children is your marriage. You'll literally teach them how to interact with God and how God interacts with them. That's why it's a covenant. It's a vow. It has nothing to do with legalities. It has very little to do with your happiness. It has everything to do with your holiness, and they never signed up for it. So they're not dumb, they just never bought in. And our heart toward them shouldn't be anger, it should be what? Love. They don't know. How beautiful are the feet of those who go and tell them, that's a Bible term. A much greater and broader sin than gay marriage would be materialism, the whole thought process that I live on earth to make myself happy. Living on earth to make yourself happy makes all the sense in the world. If you've never been told that you're created by a loving God, that when you were created, he prepared you in advance for good works that you were meant to do, and that the highest calling of God is to give your life to him and give your life to others, and that the only real way to have satisfaction and happiness is to lay your life down. In fact, if you want to lose your life, you gain it. If you try to gain your life, you're going to lose it. And not everything on this side of earth is going to pay off, but in eternity, you're going to be rewarded out your ears. If you have no idea what that means, then you live to make money because you think you can buy happiness. You're not an idiot. Nobody ever said anything different. And Paul looks and he says, what do I, what do I care? What, their behavior is not my concern. Their soul is my concern. I'm not, I'm not going to step up and say, you better change your behavior. Or No, no, no. I'm going to step up and say, you didn't realize this. <laughs> but you need to be rescued. And this is going to blow your mind. There's a God who's not out to get you. He doesn't need to get you. You condemned yourself with your own sin. He's out to love you. He showed up. He died on purpose. He paid a debt he didn't know because you owe a debt you can't pay. It's us for them. 
And disciples of Jesus Christ are known for that. Disciples of Jesus Christ spend tens of thousands of dollars on a higher education and then move into the ghetto to reach people. Disciples of Jesus Christ sell everything they have and put it in their parents' basement and move to Chad. Nobody in Chad asked them to come. hundred years ago, James Goebel sold everything, got an education, kissed his family goodbye because he knew he was going to die in Africa, went and brought the God. That's, that's why there's churches in Chad today. Because some guy stepped out of his heaven and went and loved people who didn't even care. Because they didn't know. I have friends that came to the gospel through that who literally just took bullets, laid down their life for Muslim extremists who hate them. Nobody wondered if they actually love Jesus or not. The disciples of Jesus Christ were never called to change a culture with the vote. You won't find it in the book. They were never called to pass legislation. They were never called to keep traditions. They were called to love. And that radical love literally altered the course of human history. It literally redeemed cultures. And when the love stopped and everything else started, the hearts of the people changed and now the culture doesn't work the way we want it to. That love changed Rome. That love changed Greece. That love changed Europe. That love changed America. And that love can and will change the world again. And it's the most powerful thing God gives us. It's a supernatural love placed into us fathered into us is what the Greek word means, by God himself. Our greatest tool for affecting change is not the sophistication of our argument, it's the passion of our love. And when we lay that tool down, nobody ever told me that. I found that out when I was in college. Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me God loved me. I thought God was mad at me. I thought I was a sinner in the hand of an angry God. I didn't realize I was the object of a passionate God's love. Nobody ever mentioned that. That's what I was taught. I remember when I was six years old, a preacher came into our church, yelled for a while. He described hell. By the way, he described it accurately. And then at the end of that sermon, he said, anybody not want to go to hell, come forward right now and accept Jesus. And I was like, I am in. Because you tell a six-year-old enough about hell, they, they will accept Jesus. And here's the problem. 
He asked a question Jesus never asked. Jesus never said, who wants to go to heaven? Jesus never said, who doesn't want to go to hell? Jesus said, who will come and follow me? And those people called by their God are defined and marked and known for their love. That's a lot. That's a lot. This conversation is going to show up at Rockney's later on. I mean, that's a lot, right? I think there's, there's a couple things that we got to start asking ourselves. Here's the first one. I think this is big. When you signed up to be a Christian, did you sign up for that? I didn't. When I was a little kid, I, I never signed up for that. I signed up to be a Christian. I didn't sign up to be a disciple. It's very different. I didn't even know what it meant. When I was a junior in college, I signed up to be a disciple. So it's a, it's a big question. It's an important one. When you signed up to, did you sign up for that? Because that is very different than what we tend to define Christianity as. And here's the second question. If I signed up for that, is my life defined by it? When people look at me, would they think to themselves, that guy loved me. You know, that guy, we completely disagree on politics, but yeah, he loves me. That guy do anything for me. We completely disagree on morality. You know, my sister's living with her boyfriend or whatever, right? But my, my brother, he loves me. We completely disagree on, you know, my, my gay friend, he's one of my best friends, but we come totally disagree because we love God first, so we don't surrender the Bible, we don't back off. We... But the relationship is not defined by my position, it's defined by my passion for you. And as you yield your heart to God, as God transforms your heart and renews your mind, right, we'll start to agree more and more. But we lead with love. So did I sign up for that? Is my life defined by that? All right, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come out. And we want, to, we want to just create some space here for a few minutes to download all that because, man, it's just a ton, right? So I want you to just maybe pray a little bit, be still, think before we, before we hit the chaos of the rest of the day and let God move this around, right, and work with him, and come to the conclusions you need to in your own life. Jesus, help us. We love you. Grateful that you love us. Thank you that while we were sinners, you gave your life for us. We did not ask. We didn't even know. We didn't care. But you did it anyways. God, as your followers, as your disciples, let that exude from us be the hallmark of our lives. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.